Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode does come with a trigger warning as it does discuss executions and deaths of enslaved people. Welcome to the Noya Caribbean podcast. This podcast is dedicated to bringing to life Caribbean history and culture from our Indo-Caribbean experience, the lives of our indigenous people, the Arawak, Kalinago, Taino, and more, our African heritage, and of course, our gangster stories of resistance and rebellion in the Caribbean, throwing in the history of our music, food, and cultural practices. The more we know our history, the more we know ourselves. So get to know yourself through Know Your Caribbean, the Know Your Caribbean podcast. Welcome, guys, to this episode of the Know Your Caribbean podcast. And today we're going to talk about the Maroons and the complex, amazing, bad girl, bad man, gangster history. That is the Maroons. And this is going to be part of a series, a mini series in the podcast because there's just so much to talk about. It's not just one Olympic uh, narrative. So today we are jumping in about Dominica. Dominica, the often very forgotten island. And I don't mean the Dominican Republic, okay? Dominica is an island of a very, very unique and incredible history. Number one, it is the only island in the Commonwealth that went straight to Republic statehood after um, independence. Most um, other countries in the Caribbean, for example, like uh, Guyana and Trinidad, it took them several years after independence for them to go into the statehood of being a republic. But Dominica went straight in. They didn't wait. They didn't stick. Right. So I think that's pretty amazing. But, you know, even within Dominica's history, it's so incredible as a Kalinago stronghold. It has, you know, one of the last Kalinago um, stronghold communities in the Caribbean in 1981. An attempt was also made in Dominica for it to be overthrown by the KKK. Yes, the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, did try to take over Dominica and convert it into a cocaine colony. Maybe that should be another podcast episode. But yeah, Dominica's history is pretty, pretty unique and amazing. 
So I'm going to give you guys a history about it a little bit. And to do that, obviously, we've got to go way back. But one of the things I wanted to touch on before I got into the history of the Maroons is for you to understand the landscape of Dominica if you've never been. Dominica is very green. It's very lush. It's very mountainous. It is, you know, it says it has 365 rivers. It is just absolutely a lush forested paradise. It has the highest concentration of active volcanoes in the world because it has at least six active volcanoes on that island but you know the terrain especially the interior of the terrain is extremely mountainous and lush and impenetrable by the europeans so it was one of the last islands to be colonized and one of the things i did talk about in the episode about christianity and slavery is that dominica is the only country or colony in the western hemisphere where slavery was founded by a black man yes black man started slavery in Dominica. His name was Genoa Rule, and he was a Catholic, a devout Catholic, and he did start slavery in Dominica. Dominica's terrain was seen as so mysterious that it wasn't until the 1950s when aerial photographs were taken that people gained a full understanding about Dominica's terrain. During the plantation system, most plantations did not extend further than two miles from the coast leaving this huge expanse of interior which is 170 square miles of just open land in order for people to live in right or to liberate themselves from the shackles of enslavement and develop their own communities so the maroon community in dominica was larger than the whole of Barbados. let me say that again the maroon community in Dominica, so the land that they had, their community, the expanse of what it was, was larger than the size of Barbados. Okay? I'm sorry, that's gangster. Within that, I'd like to make a confession very early on. Majority of this podcast is me reading excerpts from the absolutely incredible Dr. Lennox Honeychurch who wrote this book all about the Maroons of Dominica where you can access it in the show notes. It's an incredible book and I'm just reading a few excerpts from it that help to give us an insight about the dynamics of the Maroons of Dominica, their fight for freedom and also some personal stories as well. One of the things that I love about history is finding personal stories about people, not just talking about overarching narratives but talking about people names what did they do what did they say right so we're going to jump into some of that but let's look at the dynamics of dominica during this period so uh, in accordance to dr honeychurch's book it says that in dominica in 1763 it had 1718 french inhabitants 500 free negroes and people of color 5,000 enslaved, 3,000 of which were working adults and 2,000 were children, and 50 to 60 Kalinago families. 3,000 acres of land was occupied and it produced in that year 271,650 pounds of cocoa. It also produced 17,400 pounds of coffee and then it says... 1,690,368 pounds of coffee produced. So it goes on to say within uh, Dr. Honeychurch's book that when full emancipation was granted on the 1st of August in 1838, 
the slaveholders of Dominica received 275,000 547 pounds from the British government, while the 14,175 former enslaved were left with absolutely nothing to start out their lives as free people. Now the 275,000, this equates to millions of dollars in today's money. This must be taken into account when considering Dominican society today, for when seen in that light, it is remarkable that what has been achieved in areas such as education, home and land ownership and self-government, given that the majority of our citizens started off with nothing. Amen to that. This is some of the things that, you know, many people don't take into consideration when they say don't, uh, you know, get over slavery and everything like that. Not understanding the complexities of the financial legacies on top of the emotional trauma and so on that we have inherited, but also that our ancestors started off with jack shit. So, talking about Dominica. Dominica was a neutral island. What is a neutral island? So, what had happened is, you know, the French, the Spanish, the British, whoever, whatever, everybody fighting, right? Everybody wants a piece of the pie. So, what had happened is, I'm going to read another excerpt from the book because he describes it beautifully and really transforms you back to the time of what had happened. So, goes like this the neutral island creating a maroon base a fleet of about 10 dugout canoes each bearing 20 kalinago paddlers and supporters landed on a very long gray sandy beach in front of the fledgling town of Baste, the main settlement on st kitts they had come from as far as st vincent and the island that they still knew as Huruma, and they had been joined on their way by their colleagues from dominica the Kalinagos had been drawn to send kids by the news that one of their main patrons, Philippe de Lonvilliers de Ponce, the governor general of the Compagnie de Saint Christophe, was dying, and that before he departed this world, he wished to make a treaty to protect the last Amerindians on the islands. Leaving their canoes on the beach, they began to walk up the long, gentle slopes towards de Ponce's baroque chateau in the hills above Bastet. And the band of 200 Kalinagos on the move attracted more stairs of the enslaved Africans bent in labor among the fields of cotton, tobacco, and the newly introduced sugarcane, which grew in a lush carpet from the hilltops down to the seashore. When the Kalinagos reached the chateau, a small group of French and English settlers was waiting on the terrace to guide them. At the end of a large marble-tiled hall, sat de Ponce, propped up by a damask pillow in a large armchair. Weakly, he raised his silver-headed staff and beckoned the assembled company towards the table in front of him. It was the 31st of March, 1660. This treaty, signed between the English, French, and marked with tribal icons and symbols by the Kalinagos, declared that the islands of Dominica and St. Vincent were designated as neutral islands, and not to be occupied by any European power, but to be left to the Kalinago people forever. Eight years later, on the 3rd of January, 1668, another treaty agreed aboard a ship anchored in the harbor of Charlestown Nevis reconfirmed this. On the deck with the witness was the governor of the English Caribbean, Lord Francis Willoughby, and his French counterpart, Dubert, governor of the French Isles of America, in the presence of the Kalinago representatives from Dominica and St. Vincent. In the following century, in 1748, the Treaty of Ola Chapelle reinforced the terms of this neutrality. So, this is one of the things we have to consider. So, Dominica was a neutral island for a long time, but that did not deter enslavement from happening on the island. Um, through small agreements with the Kalinago people, as described in the previous episode with um, Genoa Roll and his complete disrespect and disregard 
for the wishes of the Kalinago people. So to give a condensed overview of the atmosphere in Dominica during this period is that, you know, everyone was trying to snatch up land and so on. And whilst Dominica remained neutral to some degree, this did not deter the attempts for to use the land and make agreements with the Kalinago people or completely disrespect them and to begin their own plantation system on there. So within that, there was a whole back and forth between the British and the French in Dominica. And what had happened is over time, there was an increased influx of enslaved Africans coming across to Dominica as the plantations grew and grew, most of which were on the coast or within two miles from the coastline. So the interior of Dominica was left completely wide open. When we're looking at the beginnings of the plantation system in Dominica with Genoroll, who was the black man who started the first plantation, and he was a Jesuit. So he was a Catholic. He was very devout and very much involved in the church. And then when he died, he had donated his land and his enslaved and the money that he made to the church. So the church continued its escapades in Dominica and they continued to grow and grow until the British came in and overthrew them. Long story short. So... The British started their stronghold in Dominica, importing more and more enslaved. Within that, because the plantation system was not as developed as, say, in Barbados, there was room for more runaways. Of course, they had more mountains, more bush. The interior of Dominica was extremely terrifying to the European man. This is where enslaved Africans sought refuge. So as the Maroon communities expanded and expanded in Dominica, it started to become a problem and started to make the Europeans and the British in particular, who had a stronghold in Dominica, very, very uncomfortable. And here's an excerpt that was taken from the House of Parliament about, in particular, the Maroons of Dominica and their comparison to those in Jamaica. The quote goes like this. They were not like those in Jamaica. The Jamaica Maroons are a body of men originally composed of the Coromantine Negroes. So this is modern-day Ghana. Who fled from the Spanish at the first conquest of the island by the British and establishing themselves in a difficult country in its center and sometimes recruiting their number of runaway slaves at other times giving them up were acknowledged by repeated treaties and obtained a political existence. The Dominica Maroons, on the contrary, are numerous and far more savage, consisted entirely of runaways. They secreted themselves for a number of years, formed companies under different chiefs and built good houses planted in gardens in the woods, where they raised poultry, hogs and other small stock. So it's interesting this description of the Dominica Maroons as being far more savage than the Jamaica Maroons, whose community has existed since the 1500s in the interior in Jamaica. There's a lot of blame game between the French and the British. And there's a British attorney and official called Thomas Atwood who blamed the Maroons' change of mood on the French. So basically what he was saying is that when the English were there, the Maroons were cool. They were not doing nobody nothing. And then the French come in with their whole back and forth fighting. And then like the Maroons just kind of just started to pop off. And he says this, he says, They were not, however, often guilty of any material mischief and had never committed murder till the reduction of the island by the French. But soon after that happened, the depredations of the runaways began to be a far more serious nature for they robbed and destroyed property and at length killed some English inhabitants. Now this what basically was happening with this man is he's completely disregarding the mistreatment by the English to enslaved people 
And the fact is that they capitalized on when the French overthrew Dominica and everything is in an uproar. They're like, yo, it's our time now. We're going to get a retribution because you guys are in a vulnerable situation. And we're going to do our thing. If I have to escape and do all of these things and commit these robberies. So they use this time when the English were in a state of weakness to capitalize and to order to liberate themselves and head up into the bush. But they're like, oh, it's because of the French, right? But they're completely absolving themselves of the responsibility of their brutalities. Anyway, a continuation of the quote from the British Parliament was that they never acknowledge any treaty or truce whatsoever. It is very difficult for us to conceive that on an island of only 29 miles by 12, there should be a territory in an interior so strong that I believe that it would occupy more days to traverse its breadth than the distance contains miles. This country, the Maroons inhabited, they cultivated some provisions and grounds, but their chief dependence was on plunder, robbery, their subsistence, their occupation, murder. I mean, this is really some kind of hyped up thing about it goes to show the fear that the Maroons kind of culminated or brought up into the hearts of these people because it was just so the interior Dominica just seems so vast and mysterious and scary to them and this resonates in this kind of things these discussions they were having in the British Parliament so continuing on from Dr. Honeychurch's book he says this by 1785 a string of maroon camps had developed in the center of Dominica each was led by a chief and at this time there was 13 major figures in the southern camps there were Congo Ray Bala Zombie Jupiter Juba Cicero and Hall above Grand Four and the camp of Mabuya and the higher reaches of the Layu Valley, there was Jaco, Gori Greg and Sandy. These camps were also inhabited by women and children, women such as Charlotte, Calypso, Angelique, Mary Rose, Tranquille and Victory. I just love the names. I mean, there's a woman called Calypso. I just find it so cool. I just, ah, I love it so, so, so much. This is from 1785 that there was a maroon chiefess called Calypso. I mean, I love. The maroons had organized themselves into social and political units headed by the chiefs, sub-chiefs, and captains. Each chief had special gun bearers who acted as loyal valets, seeing to their needs. One of the things that happens under the pressures of, you know, European, you know, enslavement and brutality is that it's very difficult to agree on certain things under such high emotional stress. And so within the book, it talks about Chief Bala, who is one of the main chiefs, a maroon chiefs in Dominica. Within months of British reoccupation of the island, Chief Bala got news that the planters were raising their own army because they could not depend on the regular troops stationed at the garrisons. Now, when you talk about regular troops, we have to keep in mind that most of the troops were black. So this is part of the West India Regiment. This is part of incentives given to enslaved people to earn money or also their freedom if they would do things like fight against the Maroons and keep the peace on the islands. This is one of the ways that were in which slavery was able to continue for as long as it did because of the West India Regiments. So because of this, when you're talking about the planters developing their own army, most likely that this army would be majority black. So in consultation with Farcel, Cicero and Congo Ray, the Maroon leaders, Bala appears to have argued for the creation of a major camp in the middle of the island to meet force with force. 
He wanted to match the militia numbers and launch an attack against the plantations to catch the British off guard before they had time to fully organize their colonial forces. So when you're talking about the army, this legion was made up of 500 men, free people of color, Europeans, and quote-unquote trusty enslaved Africans belonging to various plantations. One of the interesting things that Dr. Honeychurch talks about in his book is the ownership of enslaved people by people of African descent. From the very beginning, there were already many slaveholders of African descent here when the British took over. Dominica had the highest percentage of free colored slave masters than any of the other colonies except for Grenada. One of the most prominent black slaveholders was John Baptiste Louis Birmingham, who owned as many as 167 slaves and was charged with smuggling slaves to Trinidad after 1807 when the law forbade it. So that's really quite interesting. You know, it's very interesting to look at the complex dynamics within the Caribbean. It wasn't just black versus white. And then we have all of these kind of different nuances when you're talking about our enslaved culture. So when we're talking about the different, you know, even within the, the armies, it's very interesting to find out that some of the Kalinagos had actually joined forces with the Europeans. And, you know, this is what uh, Dr. Honeychurch touches on as well, where he says in 1805, Kalinagos guide Governor George Prevost across the island during the French attack on Roseau. There is no record of a single Kalinago being captured on any wanted list of rebels during the entire Maroon period. On the contrary, during the Second Maroon War of 1812 to 1814, we find a Kalinago private in the 4th West Indies Regiment who is killed and has his heart ripped out of his chest on the orders of the Maroon chief when he takes the message from the British governor to the Maroon camp. Damn. Another thing that Dr. Honeychurch touches on, with the permission of their master, domestic and skilled slaves were allowed to buy and own slaves themselves in some cases. So one, a Mionette, a Creole slave, so therefore a black woman born in Dominica, of Geneva Estate purchased an African she named Victorine, whom she rented out so she can earn money for herself on the side. So I never heard of that before, but there we go. This is the very you know complex dynamics of our histories. So when we look at these complexities within the societies of enslaved that, you know, enslaved owned enslaved or that the Kalinagos also, you know, worked alongside the Europeans to suppress the efforts of the Maroons for their own liberation. Also looking at the dynamics of who was in these regiments um, to stop all of these rebellions, that it wasn't just a bunch of white people, but it was actually black and indigenous people working alongside these Europeans to stop these resistances. So one of the tragedies within the stories of the Maroons is the Maroon leader called Cicero. And, you know, he was in turn executed because he was betrayed. He was sold out by an enslaved man who informed the Europeans of his location and he was taken down to the jail um, to be executed. And the description here from Dr. Honeychurch's book, which comes from the actual description from 1786, and it says here about Cicero, he shall be carried back to the common jail of the island, there to remain until Saturday the 4th of March, and from hence be carried to Woodbridge Bay and to the French houses on King's 50 paces and there to be gibbeted alive. The scene of Cicero's execution was Foncole, where he was left broken and exposed on an ox cart wheel atop a pole as a lesson to others. The following day was the main market day, and all the persons going to Roso to sell their produce could have seen the body. 
The man who had helped the capture of him was paid a reward of 33 pounds. As Friar Prosmans said, the text which I have seen says 33 pounds, 33 pounds which he received, and I found it criminal that he just had to put it 33, like Judas got his 33 pieces too. Madness. Absolutely. I think it's... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Is it ironic? I mean, isn't that so ironic? about Judas and the 33 pieces and the way that Cicero was betrayed by one of his own people. So as things are kicking off and Cicero has been executed on the 4th of March, on the 17th, the House of Assembly is hype. They're really hoping to try and stop everything that's happening with Chief Bala and all of their attacks that have been happening across the plantations and their demands for their own freedom. And the offerings or rewards goes as this. The governor-in-chief has been authorized to award the offer of 16 pounds to any slave and the sum of 150 pounds you see the difference like 10 times more to any white or free person who shall apprehend or bring in the head of bala fasel congari i think they meant congore um mabuya over and above the rewards already given by the law so they're really trying to push that money to get them down in the same month, the chief Cicero was captured near Bori Lake by a free Negro called Augustine. The chief's hiding place had been revealed by a fellow slave. 
When Cicero was dragged before the court, the other enslaved gave evidence against him. Cicero was found guilty for being involved in the attack on Rosalie and was condemned to death. On that very same day, a bill was introduced to alter and amend the act for the more effectual suppression of runaway slaves. So the maroon camps were attacked and severely mauled, some 150 of them being killed or captured. Later that month, three or more chiefs were taken. Bala, Gory Greg, and Sandy. In response to the reward that was offered, Bala was betrayed by a slave of Belfast Estate. So with this, guys, we're going to take a quick musical break. With this piece of music, I hope you enjoy. As with every month, we're going to be bringing in a piece of Caribbean music. And I hope you guys like this piece. Kalinago National Anthem. guys welcome back and continuing on with the story of the dominica maroons which is an ongoing and definitely needs an episode two three and so on in accordance to lennox honey church's book he says this the british militia this including the black corps use european military style tactics whilst the maroons use jungle guerrilla warfare so he's talking about the two different military style tactics which at different times worked in favor of the other parties and sometimes it worked against them so he says the maroons lived in areas with impassable tracks near precipices in the thick uncharted forests, with the intention of making it super difficult even for the most experienced trackers I read an example of a maroon cab in Cuba, which was left abandoned. They left vats of poisoned water for unsuspecting thirsty trackers. I mean, this was gangster. I'm sorry. I thought when I read that excerpt, I got so hyped. I thought that was such an ingenious tactic. Okay, so that's when you're talking about their guerrilla warfare. These are the type of things that they did. So needless to say, the maroons were experts in booby traps and knowledge of forest poison. So the Legion, the Legion is, as we said, the black corps. These are the black militia who have been recruited and given various incentives as to do that. Because we have this belief that within, when we're talking about the legacy of enslavement um, in the Caribbean, we always thought it was just black versus white. But slavery was able to continue for so long because of help from black people. 
in terms of the militia. Because when we're talking about in the Caribbean, you hearing like whatever island has 50,000 black people and like a thousand white people or less. And you're like, how? Right. And that's how that's how they did it. They used to do systems and give people incentivize people and look at human nature and just say, hey, I'll give you some extra saltfish. I will give you your freedom. I'll give your child some freedom if you come and fight and stop these maroons from making all of this noise. So this is how they managed to keep and to maintain these kind of systems. The Legion sent out to battle the ever-growing maroon army consisted of 500 men, free men of color, Europeans, and quote-unquote trusty enslaved Africans. So that's what we're talking about, the certain incentives and the hierarchies within the plantation system and so on. We were not all friends back in the day we have to look at the complexities now and same way how we are not all friends today we were not all friends back in the day okay this legion managed to attack one of chief Bala's main camps and lay down the law on those captured when this news reached Bala, and in retaliation he and his troops blocked roads with huge trees and set up guards so no one could pass over 100 maroons hit a sugar estate in a pitch black of night, killing the manager, two overseers, and a chief Negro slave driver by throwing him into the fire of a burning building. Now, looking at that there, you can see there's a certain user sellout, right? User sellout. You're the chief Negro driver. A lot of the slave drivers were black, and some of them were very brutal because as long as they kept the production levels up, they would be getting incentives so therefore to do that they had to you know be extremely cruel and so some of the slave drivers were very much hated so clearly there was a lot of hate to throw this man into a fire right and it said for two days Bala and his crew ate and drank and enjoyed the spoils of the estate so one of the the key figures in the demise of the Maroons in Dominica was this carpenter it was a European carpenter and he became the head of a small group of legionnaires and you know in accordance to his story goes like this that this friar Raymond was talking to Richardson so his name is Richardson and he says Richardson met the captain of the camp at Lodat and his captain told him I'm rather small today because I got a good shaking up from Rosal so he got a good shaking up from the maroons right and so the carpenter said oh you want to catch them you talk as if it's going to be easy we do not want to go with an army like you have we want a little group of men that are really dedicated and ready to die if necessary so this man I have to say just starts to mash up the whole vibe for Bala and the whole crew, okay? So what happens is this carpenter gets a small crew of legionnaires and they start heading and adopt the same type of jungle style, clandestine, incognito warfare in the forest, okay? In accordance to historian Thomas Atwood, in how in which they found the camps, the description goes like this. They approach the camp as being a staircase with steps very far apart. These are similar to those described for the camp of Jaco overlooking the Layu River. Probably this was a design as repeated in other maroon camps across Dominica. Scaling these heights was a severe test for the legionnaires, as Thomas Atwood recounts. 
Having traveled all night through the woods and wading through the rapid rivers, crossing over steep mountains and encountering many rivers on their way, by noon the next day they came to a mountain where on the encampment of Bala. This they ascended with great difficulty, it being cut into steps of a great height above each other. Each had been done by the runaways for their own convenience as being the only possible way to ascend the mountain. Now, I find this very interesting. I'll explain. Speaking with a really good friend of mine who was great colleagues with the historian Robert DeVoe um, of St. Lucia who has passed away. He was really, really intensely looking for maroon camps in St. Lucia and he did find one and it was very much the same concept of being on a precipice and having a hidden staircase and he found it and when he found it and he was there with his colleagues and so on really excited and he's like yo i found it it's a staircase and like what you talking about it's just rock robert what you talking about and he's like no look and then he said they're like there's no way you can climb it up it's too steep he's like no bend forward so if you leaned forward and used this as a way to climb up the steps. It was much easier. And when they got up to the top, they found the maroon camp. And I mean, of course, it was everything had rotted away, but they had found evidence of where holes were dug, where pools were set, and so on. And that's how they found the maroon camp. So it's really interesting that in St. Lucia also, they had adopted the concept that you see in Dominica about using precipices to make very steep staircases to get to their camps. So going on, so in accordance to, you know, Dr. Honeychurch's book, he says this, most of the Maroons had already fled, but unfortunately, several women and children were left behind in the emergency evacuation. So what had happened is that this camp was ambushed. Because the Europeans were using their own military style, the Maroons had an advantage. But now that they had started to adopt or understand the ways of navigating in the Dominican forest, this maroon camp was ambushed. Some of our favorite bad girls were captured, including our favorite Calypso, as well as Marie Rose, Charlotte, Rose, Victoire, Tranquille. And some of them were said to be wives of Bala, Sandy, and Gory Greg. One of the children captured was Bala's young son. So, at this time, evidence given by black people was not admissible in court in the Caribbean during this time and long after the end of enslavement in lots of countries. And Dominica was no exception. Now, because within that, when you're talking about black people's testimony was not admissible, is that because a lot of the atrocities were com committed by white people right at this time so therefore any testimony by black people would have been inadmissible because their opinions aren't validated and normally they are the victims right so what had happened in dominica is in an effort to destroy the maroons legislature was quickly passed to allow the captured women to testify they were offered a so-called leniency after confessing to the courts and providing valuable information they were sent back to their masters with their children except for Bala's son. Now, this description about this leniency and this and that, leniency was probably, okay, we won't kill you, but we don't know if these women were whipped, if they were tortured, if they were threatened, and what led them to testify and what exactly they testified. But in the end, they did, and they were sent back to be in enslavement. And who knows what happened to them when they got to the plantations? Nobody knows. 
within that, they're still looking for Bala, right? A reward was issued for £16 to any enslaved person and £150 to any white person. I thought that uh, so interesting that, you know, someone white would get almost 10 times the amount of enslaved person, but we know the vibe already, right? So it goes on to say that maroon camps were targeted with brute force with incentives for money, with 150 being killed or captured. Within a few short weeks, the chiefs were cornered and betrayed. An enslaved man on Belfast estate sold out Bala, who was shot by a party of black rangers. This is the hard part for me when I'm reading some of the histories because I'm like, I want my people to win. If we lose, I don't want us to lose too by the hands of our own people. But, you know, at the end of the day, they knew that money and incentive was a way to break us down. Okay? So here is an excerpt of, you know, the end of Chief Bala, one of our Caribbean heroes. And you know what? He went down like a G. Okay, so here's a description that was written back in the day and including Chief Bala's last words. So it goes like this. Good fortune has given us possession of the principal runaway chief Bala. Many of his followers are killed and taken. Many have surrendered and the rest are greatly dispersed and distressed. Bala would not suffer himself to be taken until so wounded that he could not fly. So it's saying, hey, yo, he was fighting till the end, until like they, he was so wounded, he couldn't run away anymore, right? So it says, hey, the behavior of this deluded wretch at his death. I, you know what? Like I keep saying, I love reading things like this. The behavior of this deluded wretch. You know, the man was talking some gangster shit because in their mind, right, in their mind, you have to be delusional to demand freedom in this way for you to choose to leave the so-called comforts of living on the plantation to go and live in the bush. You are delusional. You are delusional to believe that you are deserving of this freedom and you are willing to die for that. That is delusion in their eyes and i see it as completely revolutionary completely inspiring and completely the opposite of what we have been taught about ourselves so it says the behavior of this deluded wretch at his death proved him as hardened as previous conduct had done he refused answering almost any questions that were put to him though perfectly in his senses but they just call him deluded, right? He called upon his captors repeatedly to cut off his head, telling them that they might do so, but that Bala would not die. Now that's gangster, right? His obia or charm and his child were the only things he expressed much anxiety about. The former he wished to bury, the latter, a boy of about five years old, he bid to remember the Beckys or the white man had killed his father. So what happened to Bala's son? He was kind of taken away and sent to England, which I find absolutely bizarre. And then his story has disappeared into the history books. No one knows what happened, but he did not stay in Dominica. But he was sent to England to, to be schooled. This is what is the last record of Bala's son, which I find so confusing to me. Like what? 
if it's someone that you have such hatred for, you're going to take his son and send him to school in England. It, it makes no sense. But then his story, Bala's son, disappears. We don't know what happened to him. So within that, within the brutality of what the Europeans did in Dominica, many instead were burnt alive in public squares or placed in cages left to die with no food or water. And it was a very public execution, which is a means of instilling fear into our people, right? So what happened is, in response to the mayhem, the British government revised the laws and efforts to stop enslaved from running away by making some measly reductions, right here what they did, by limiting the amount of lashes for an enslaved to receive down to 39 but no one is held accountable how do you check you know they do have records of oh so and so got 25 lashes so and so got 14 lashes but i mean who's really taking account to these things right but obia obia as we're talking about it's seen about bala and his obia charm was something that he felt that was really important to him his son and his obia charm so it says obia also became an issue steeped in fear of african empowerment and it was swiftly banned. So keep in mind, in Taki's revolt in Jamaica in the 1700s, Obia was swiftly banned after his revolt. Anytime something gangster happens in the Caribbean, any revolt that has these people shook, ooh, no, can I have Obia banned? Make it illegal. Da, 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 da. Okay? Please note the trend. So, seen as a means to garner an enslaved collective of resistance and secret societies dedicated to the destruction of the white man. The last revision of the Obia law in Dominica remains unchanged since 1904. Okay? So it's like 100, almost 120 years old and it has not changed. And it goes as this. This is the Obia Act of Dominica. Obia means obia as ordinarily understood and practiced and includes witchcraft and working or pretending to work by spells or by professed occult or supernatural power. The purpose of the Obia Act is stated as an act for preventing and punishing persons who pretend to exercise or use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery or other supernatural practices. So, folks, I'm going to leave you on that to marinate a little bit about just why we are afraid of Obia, why we think it's bad, and just that every time we had a rebellion in the Caribbean, Obia was banned. So, guys, I hope that this episode was informative and helped to give you a bit of perspective about resistance and rebellion in the Caribbean and helping us to get to know ourselves through Know Your Caribbean. See you guys soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.